you would open in your bulletin to the insert, we would read and ask and answer the question of Lord's Day 1. I print this translation of the Heidelberg Catechism, or I've had it printed by our able bulletin clerk, and it's a translation of the old, uh, it's an older translation of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's not precisely the same, therefore, as in the back of the Psalter hymnals. But here in Lord's Day 1, we have this expression of our only comfort What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Then the second question and answer, what do you need, uh, what you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer is first, how great my sins and miseries are, Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Thus far we read from the Heidelberg Catechism. We want to resume again our instruction in the Catechism, beloved, and we're mindful of the fact that this is an ancient creed ancient and yet ever-relevant because it brings forth the truth of the ever-relevant Word of God. We are mindful of the fact that fathers have penned these words of the Heidelberg Catechism and that for some 500 years, the Reformed churches anyway, have benefited from the instruction therein. This Catechism, and for those not familiar with catechism preaching, is like a road map. The road map of the scriptures leading us to the important points that we ought to remember in order to know the essence of the word of God, that is the gospel in Jesus Christ, and reminding us of the whole counsel of God. In fact, this is a purpose of catechetical preaching and hearing and instruction, that we are led into the truth of all the scriptures, not just into certain truths that a minister might ride as riding a hobby horse. We are mindful of the whole counsel of God, especially as revealed in Jesus Christ, and of the good news of salvation, and not simply in certain aspects of the truth of the Word of God, however important they may be. So the main truths are the main thing about the Heidelberg Catechism. Anyone with a scriptural ear and understanding can understand that the Heidelberg Catechism is eminently biblical. This is what Frederick Elector III of Germany sought to prove to the the, uh, uh, the, empire, the king of the Rome, Holy Roman Empire, when he defended this catechism, that it was biblical, and that it was biblical over against other uh, religions and Protestant religions that had um, developed out of the Protestant Reformation. It was distinct, and he showed that in his defense of the catechism, and this became the great way of sharpening the people of God in the Palatinate, or the German province of Elector Prince Frederick III. We are very glad for the Catechism. We are glad for this instructor. And we're glad not simply and not at all because the words themselves are infallible or because they can't be said better. Of course, this is a human document. 
However, it's an ecclesiastical document. It's been approved by many churches and used to their edification. And this is exactly, precisely, what Jesus meant it to be. That is, that we have helpers in catechisms and creeds to help us, to sharpen us on the anvil of controversy sometimes about what's true and what's not. But also that we might have ministers who are themselves led of the Spirit and who would apply the truths of the catechism in a lively way. So you're not going to find me just repeating things that have been said before by other ministers or by myself. It's not at this point where Reverend Dick is going to just turn the pile over and go back to what he said in the first or third catechism sermon. That's not the case, even though I'll remind you that I've preached through the catechism probably eight or nine times in my 30 years of ministry, at least that. And so, yes, it's old to me. But the beauty of it is, the beauty of the word, it's deep, is the truth of the catechism because the Word of God is this great diamond mine. And there's not just diamonds, but there's other gems and rubies and all kinds of treasures to be mined. God's Word is that way. And it's the job of a minister, the laborious mind-digging of the minister, to search those riches and to bring them forth in all their fullness and joy and wonder to you and to myself. And so may God help us as we hear attentively what God has taught the churches and what he will teach the churches to maintain them in the faith in these latter days. Lord's Day 1 introduces us to this wonderful theme of comfort, and it's an introductory Lord's Day of the 52 following the weeks of the year. And in fact, the entire catechism is oriented around this Lord's Day. It is this comfort theme that's brought out, a very personal catechism. Other catechisms, like the Westminster catechisms, however valuable they are, and they are, are not near so personal as the Heidelberger. And people have loved this because the, 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 uh, the instructor and God himself wants us to know what is your only comfort in life and in death? Not just what is comfort, what is doctrine, but what is it to you? And we are to say, it's to me something so that I know that I belong to Jesus. This is my Savior, my Redeemer, my friend, and God has given me this salvation to pronounce it and to live by it. And so, We want to consider this and always in light of the Word of God and and that directly even. And so let's turn now to the Word of God on which I would base um, the truths of comfort which we address today. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. And I would speak to you of the letter that Jesus was, uh, that John was given to write down to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the first seven verses of Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. It is, I could say, coincidental that we'll be studying this letter in our Bible study uh, this, uh, this Wednesday, but more than that, there's something here we need to get out of this sermon on comfort that Jesus would speak to the Ephesians about. And we'll also deal with that in our Bible study. So, the Word of God on which is based, uh, which is the basis for our instruction. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's talking about walking through the churches and being with the ministers and the congregation. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first to love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As we shall be seeing, beloved, the theme of comfort which we address in our sermon this this morning is something that Jesus himself would bring to the church of Ephesus in the letter to the Ephesians. And we'll see how applicable that is as Jesus identifies himself as with that church and as the one who holds out the promise of paradise to that church. Now that has to do with comfort, doesn't it? But comfort, this is the the great theme of the catechism, and the word itself ought to be examined just briefly. Comfort means strength and uh, encouragement. That's what comfort means in 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 the etymology of the whole word. And it's strength and encouragement of a certain kind, we should remember, and it has to do with, of course, our only comfort in life and in death and belonging to Jesus. So we're, we're led to something far above the comforts of this world, but something that deals with us, this comfort and encouraging word from heaven. While we are in this world full of discomfort, Let's face it, the catechism would be real with us right away and speak to us in this world. This isn't just a theory that's being brought forth. This is to young men and to young women, to children, and to those parents and and those spouses and so on who are having trouble in this world. So the comfort is called something that we have in life and in death because in life and all the way to death, from womb to tomb, as we say, there's this problem. We need to know that there's this problem, but that it's overcome by the Savior. In the world, much discomfort. In the world, we have trouble. The psalmist reminds us as the sparks fly upward. And we're reminded, even as Christians, we have trouble Ecclesiastes 9, whether we're righteous or wicked, the same event happens to them all. We're not exempt from the troubles of the world. And, of course, who needs to be reminded of that, of the disease, the societal ills and the disruption, and the the dying and the death and the disruption of society. And as we're seeing it, it's, it's amazing how anything is being held together. And we are those who know keenly the vanity of this world, the futility of the efforts of man to try to get us out of this trouble. And perhaps more than any age, definitely more than any other age, we're aware of the worldwide troubles through the internet and other media. And it comes to us, wave after wave of information and disinformation, about all the evils of the world and the earthquakes and the shootings and the terrorist plots. It's enough to make one a conspiracy theorist. Well, beloved, the catechism presents for us a comfort that's very, very special. It's a comfort for the believing child of God. It's a comfort of the gospel and Jesus Christ. It's an encouragement and a word to strengthen us for our life. And it's a confession we make. It's not just a creed out there on a piece of paper, but you take this as your own. You make this your own. And pretty soon we're going to have a confession of faith in the congregation here among um, Jonathan. And he's going to be confessing his faith and 
his belief in his only comfort in life and in death. That's an amazing thing. That child grown up in the church and then comes to years and, and we all with him confess this thing. It's not something we find in a bottle. It's not a comfort, that's southern comfort. It's a comfort not just of body and convenience and something which makes us more comfortable on our lounge chair. It's a comfort and our only comfort in Jesus Christ. Now, there's four or five things about that, and I want to just briefly go over them in this first point. The Catechism reminds us that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Catechism goes right to the heart of it. Jesus Christ is the God, our Savior of all comfort. And redemption in him, that's the thing. We're bought from evil. And from our state of guilt, we have been taken because of the blood of Jesus and the substitutionary sacrifice. This is what's all here. All here in this very packed question and answer one, and which will be unpacked in the rest of the catechism, but here you have it. And this is why we want to go on in this catechism, because it expounds the good news. We are not our own. We don't belong to Adam anymore. We don't belong to the devil. We don't belong to circumstance. We don't belong and are identified by our limitation, maybe some kind of infirmity we have. We belong to Jesus Christ. And he's our faithful savior. So that it's not just belonging to a master, it's belonging to a savior. So, so wonderful. And this, over against the culture that says, well, belonging to anybody's not for me. I don't, I'm my own man. I'm an independent uh, thinker. And I do my religion on, the, on, the, on my own. And I go to work and I make money for myself. And, and I'm only voluntarily into whatever I get into, and if I want to back out, even back out of marriage, I'll do that too. But belonging to Jesus is everything for the child of God. Look how the Bible speaks of this. In 1 Peter, I'll just quote some text here. Again, the biblicalness of the catechism. 1 Peter 1 and verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed, bought with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is great comfort of, of Peter who was redeemed by the Lord and reinstated by him. Romans 14 and 17 and 18, we're told this. <clears throat> Romans 14, 17 and 18. No, 7 and 8, excuse me. None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. There's no shame there in living for the Lord, because we are the Lord's. There's a wonderful, wonderful peace that Paul had in the Romans and wrote to them, a peace that passed all understanding, and not just the Roman peace, being in the fellowship of God and serving this God. And then you have 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the wonderful verse of our being indwelt by the Spirit, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and this, beloved, you are not your own? And here is the reason, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify your God in, God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so you have this. 
this wonderful Christological comfort in the first thing of the gospel, we are bought with a price on Calvary, a precious price that Jesus paid. We're actually bought. Right away, the catechism here is taking a shot at Roman Catholicism that uh, doesn't know the truth of the redemption of Jesus Christ and the one-time work of the tetelestai, it is finished on the cross. It had to have this unbloody repetition of the sacrifice in the Mass to augment the atonement somehow and to assure people that as long as they attended to this Mass, they were okay with God. But belonging to Jesus who bought us once by his precious blood, that's our catechism's comfort in ours. And then there's this, the second thing that's our comfort is that we're, uh, our sins are not only paid for, but we're set free from all the power of the devil. So beautiful. John 8, 34, Jesus reminds even the religious cream of the crop, the Pharisees, that they who continue in sin are slaves of sin because they're slaves of the devil. And that's so true. But we who are bought with the price and our sins atoned for are as well indwelt by the Spirit and set free by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified and made holy. And it's right here. We are given this this wonderful right to life in the atonement and then this condition of life in the setting free by the truth and spirit of Jesus Christ from the tyranny of the devil. And then there's this. We are provided for. And the catechism goes right to providence. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. This is everything that's mentioned here. Redemption accomplished and redemption applied and then redemption preserved. What Jesus Christ has begun, he continues to do. There is this wonderful completeness of the Savior that's brought out here and it will be brought out in detail in the Lord's days to come. But our only comfort is that we have a complete Savior and an only comfort that is not to be competed with or augmented by anything we can find in this world. Jesus Christ out of this world into this world and now gone up with a shout is our only comfort. That's basically what the catechism is reminding us of. And so we're led back to the truth of the scripture even here that Israel knew in the Old Testament, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. In all the discomfort of the world, there's a God is a very present help. And this all revealed in God present with us in the Son, Emmanuel, come into our existence and our life and taking on the human nature. Romans 8 is quoted here. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. The preservation of the saints is brought out here. In Matthew 6, where Jesus himself reminds us that the Father takes care of the little things, of the birds and of the hair that falls from your head. How much more then will he care for you? And if he cares for the little things, will he not care for the great things? God is the God who leaves nothing to chance. The God who saves, provides, and provides for his people because they're his children, and he is our great and perfect heavenly father who leaves us a great inheritance and a great hope and will never, never leave us nor forsake us. And then we're assured by Christ's Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is quoted here again and alluded to. The Holy Spirit of adoption is given, and so we have this assurance Thereby, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a great God who not only says, I love you, but gives us ears to hear that. Who not only says, I, I am speaking the language of mine own son here, that word, that's the word I want to say. But now I want you to hear this 
And I want you to hear this above the cacophony, the noise of all that's going on here. I want you to tune in to my son, and I give you the ability to do that because I give you myself in the person of the Holy Spirit who whispers in your ears and my ears and says, yes, I'm with you. There's a still small voice to be sure, but it's powerful. And again, the catechism right at this point takes issue with Rome, the church that had left the faith and reminds the people of God we can have assurance. Ignorance is not the mother of devotion. Ignorance is bad. Knowledge is good. The assurance that I'm not my own but belong to Jesus. And then finally, this Holy Spirit sanctifies and makes us willing, heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So there's belonging to Jesus. There's being delivered by Jesus from the tyranny of the devil. There's being provided for and kept. There's being assured of this and sanctified to live a godly life. This is what the catechism says is our only comfort in life and in death. Beloved, I would say that in a way, <clears throat> this is the promise of, of home, home life with God. Catechism dealing uh, Christologically with these truths of our comfort reminds us that Jesus brings us home. He brings us so close to God that this world is not our home. We belong to another place because we belong to the God of another place of eternity and divinity. And that's where we're going. And that's why when Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus of Asia Minor, the promise to this people, which seems to have all their theological ducks in a row and their hates right, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, the promise of this mediator who nevertheless threatens this people because they've lost their first love, is to give them to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Reminded we are in that word of the way it was, the way it was in Adam and Eve's fellowship with God, the paradise of God and eating of the tree of life. That was the symbol of their wonderful communion with God. Well, beloved, the catechism is teaching of this great comfort, and Jesus speaks of it in the New Testament, the glorified Jesus, not so that we go backwards to the first paradise, but so that we go forward to the home that God is preparing for us in heaven. That's our only comfort in life and in death. Ultimately, it's heaven beyond this life and after death when we die and go to glory. So this is our only comfort for life and for death. It's our only comfort when loved ones who love the Lord live and die in Jesus. And even if they have gone astray for a little while, they come back by the grace of God, the repentant, we have this assurance that they go to glory. Our only comfort in, in their death is that they belong to Jesus just like we do Sinners all. This is the great thing. Is it your great thing, beloved? That's what I want to address you. That's how I want to address you this morning. Is your great and only comfort, your first comfort, Jesus? How important. I don't know about you, but I'm so easily distracted. And I so quickly say to myself or live like I'm saying this to myself, well, I'm comforted when I'm comfortable. I'm comforted and when it's convenient. And if it's not convenient, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm comfortable when I'm with people that I like and not with sinners. I'm comfortable in my own skin, 
and the way I always do things or think of things. And you see, the, the catechism is leading us to an impossible place, really. It's something that has to be given. In fact, it's something only known by those who are loved of God and taken to that place, a belief in God. And so we can say this remarkable confession of every single child of God, whether they say it and they have the catechism in front of them, they've memorized it or never had it, but know the truth as it is in Jesus. My only comfort, my world of comfort is in Jesus Christ who bought me, who delivers me, who speaks right to my soul, right to my heart. That's Isaiah's prophecy, you know. In Isaiah 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. The word is literally, speak to the heart, speak to the heart of my people, saith your God. They're my people, they're sitting there in the pew, and there's one standing up there, And they're all together, my people, whose heart has a problem. And out of the heart of the issues of life, so their life has a problem. The problem of being in this world. And though loved by God, somehow not getting it. Got to understand this comfort is all of grace. What's your only comfort in life and in death? This whole catechism is starting with grace. That is the beauty of it. Interesting. The Westminster Catechism, one of them, starts with glory. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God. But it ends with grace and to enjoy him forever. Chief end of man, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Catechism starts kind of the the opposite way. What's the only comfort in life and in death? To enjoy God forever and therefore to glorify him. But they're the same thing. They end up in the same direction, don't they? Beautiful. Two great and godly confessions of the Reformation and the post-Reformation of the Reformed and the Presbyterian. But you see, beginning with grace, the catechism wants to remind us that nothing begins with us, nothing good. It begins with God. What is your only comfort? Something that's been given to you by God. Who is your only Savior? Someone who's been given to you by God. Why are you delivered? Because you are made willing in the day of his power. And this is long before the canons of Dort emphasized grace. The the people of Germany, the people of wherever, they knew it. Grace is the key unlocking all the truths of the scripture and blasting all of the, the rubbish that was placed on top of the gospel by the false church of Rome. It's a people, you see, that's loved of God and knows it. And that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first. That's the people who know this comfort. The Ephesians had to know this too. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, This says he who is your God and your Savior and whose presence is absolutely vital for your being a church. This says he who's loved you, who knows everything about you because he loves you. And therefore you ought to love him back. You see, Jesus himself knows, and all the people of God know with him, we don't gain comfort 
because we got a lot of money. Isn't that amazing how the world finds comfort in a lot of money? And, and in gated communities and in walling off themselves from the hoi polloi, that's the masses, that's you and I, and drinking together and partying together and trying to be significant together and to show the world, to give back to the world by their own form of morality and liberty and belonging to themselves. This comfort of the catechism is absolutely the opposite of the comfort of the gated community and of the wealthy and of those whose comfort is rum or drugs or self-satisfaction. So that leads to my second point, beloved. And I, I, I kind of ramble because, not ramble, it's such a deep thing. But then we're led to know this, and the catechism is really here unfolding the truth of the catechism as it will be unfolded for us, that there is a way to know this. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And there's the knowledge of sins and miseries and how great mine are, and second, how I can be delivered from all them, and then how to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So you have the three sections of the catechism that are set forth here uh, nicely, neatly. Sin, salvation, and service. Lord's Day 2 to 5 will be about sin. 6 through 31 will be about salvation. And then 32 to 52 will be, will be uh, service, gratitude. Or you can put it this way, it's about guilt and grace and gratitude. That's a way to memorize the catechism. It has to do with guilt first, and then grace, and then gratitude. So you have it, and this is what you have to know. Now, how do you know it? That's the, the question. How do you know these things and how great the sin is? And just a word on that. We have this comfort, and it's there, and we're told that an aspect of it is assurance so that we know it, but... The catechism just wants to press that point about knowing and being assured and, and living out of this comfort and unto the glory of God so that you enjoy him forever beginning now, but you, your end is to glorify him in your comfort. Well, beloved, it's simply this, the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of the gospel and the reading of the word and the hearing of the word and the living by the word. That's how. That's how you know your sins and your Savior and how to serve Him. It's the Word of God. And really, we have to understand that we're going to deal with this in the subject headings one by one. First, sins and miseries, then salvation and the Savior, then service. But we read of all of that together in the one Word of God. And when a preacher preaches the word of God, I'm not going to just preach about sin so you get that right, and then next sermon or five weeks later we learn about the Savior, and then finally you learn about service. No, they're all together, though there is emphasis, there is emphasis here and there, and we need that kind of emphasis. We need to dwell somewhat on sin. We need to dwell largely on the Savior. We need to understand how to serve God in this crooked world, how to be straight in a crooked world, right where the world is wrong and, and all of that. And so, yes, there is. But preaching is how this occurs. Some people think that really it, it's not about this ongoing thing, this instruction always in all three things of sin and Savior and service. Rather, we come to know these things one by one through some kind of experience, some mysticism, some experience that I have to be taught of my sin 
by God maybe visiting me with a passage of Scripture, and I'm sitting on the park bench, and he says, Tola lega, as he did to Augustine, take up and read at this point in Romans, and then you'll know your sin, and then you'll know your Savior. Or there has to come some point in life, maybe, so that you can confess your faith where you really know because you've had an encounter with God. And it was in the highways and in the byways and after you were sowing your wild oats for a little while and you had this visit, this personal visit of the Lord Jesus and maybe in the form of some person who appeared in your life and you were by the side of the road and, and you were in an accident and then all of a sudden he disappeared and you know it was Jesus and you had this special encounter with him. Beloved, We need to understand that knowledge here is knowledge of the Word of God. What do we need to know about sin? To know about the Savior. To know about the godly life of service. What do we need to know? You'll find it in the Bible, and you'll hear of it in the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the gospel. And your reading of it, of course. Your enlightenment, according to the mind, is, is what's on here. Christianity and Protestantism is a biblical religion. God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, the fulfillment of all the prophets ever spoke, and now we hear Jesus in listening to him revealed in the Bible. This is this intelligence of Christianity that is so important and so often for God, even by the world and by the church. It's not just a feeling so that we let go and let God. It's a transformation of the mind. Truth is powerful to sanctify. Jesus prays about that. Lord, God, Father, sanctify these disciples given to me by your truth. And Jesus says to those living in sin and under the tyranny of the devil, you shall know the truth. Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the prophet Hosea, already in chapter 4 and verse 6 of his prophecy, hundreds of years ago, was lamenting the fact that the people of God were destroyed by lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. They didn't know how great their sins and miseries were. They thought they were pretty good. They couldn't know, therefore, how great their Savior is and how needy it is for them to have him. And they went off in whatever path they thought of service, even though they were self-serving. And so ignorant people do all of the time. And beloved, in this way of ignorance, there is a departure. And I, I submit to your attention that this was a, part, a departure at Ephesus where the great problem was they left their first love. Leaving their first love, they really were leaving their first understanding of Jesus and their first intelligent appropriation of him by faith in the Holy Spirit. They... they They came to the knowledge of the truth at Ephesus. And remember in Acts, the visit of the apostle to the Ephesians. Later on, John visited them. And this letter through John is to his his old companions at Ephesus. They've been delivered from the idol Diana, great of Diana of the Ephesians. They'd been delivered from covetousness. They'd been delivered from witchcraft and they'd burned their books and there'd been miracles done by the apostle and there'd been this, uh, this several month and years long ministry of Paul and then John and they'd had it all and they'd been so vibrant that they said, you know what? It's not about money. We're not going to make a, a, a buck off of this God called Jesus. We might in fact even lose our lives They came to that knowledge, that appreciation. The love of God was stirred up in them. And knowledge met with heart and heart with knowledge. And there was this communion with God. And then here's what happened. 
First century A.D. The Ephesians turned on the computers. And they started listening to the internet and all the waves of the media. And they turned it on to this chapter, uh, this, uh, this channel, and they listened to this, and they, listened, and they just had to know the latest uh, holocaust that happened in Serbia or somewhere else. And they were those who were really in tune to all of the world's miseries and calamities, and not the least of which was the decadence of the White House and of Congress. They heard it all. They had to be in tune with all of this stuff. And what happened was this in Ephesus. And it happens, of course, today. They're desensitized to the real problem. Because the real problem is not a tsunami. Or global warming. Or... Some kind of Republican shenanigans or Democratic shenanigans. The real problem is not a grizzly bear. It's sin. And the real solutions are not political. And the great way out of the problem of my soul and my unrest is not my therapy session. It's Jesus, my rest giver. He says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So you lose that sensitivity of the problem and of that connection that you have with Jesus and that he's the Savior from that problem because you're just overloaded and you're desensitized and you're not so grateful so much and you're so busy, and it makes you restless, doesn't it? It makes me restless. And so you need a break from it, and you you just don't want to read the Bible because it's not so entertaining as that, and that takes work. So you go to the bottle, and you go to the painkillers, and you get older, and you fix the aches and the pains, and nothing, of course, wrong with that. except as a substitute for the real thing, the bomb of Gilead. So the world's problems and the world's miserable comforters, solutions that are not solutions, we can lose and we lose our first love then to do the works of God in the service of God. Oh, we still have it. We still have a form. This is Ephesians. This is Ephesus all over the place. Oh, they, they, Jesus says, I commend you for your works. Your worst works are, I know, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and you've found them liars. You've persevered. You have patience. That's a lot of stuff to say. I've labored, and you've labored for my name's sake, have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Your heart's not in it. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, what? The height of faith. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. I'll shut down your church. To what the Lord of the church is saying. To the Ephesians. God forbid that happen anywhere we know of or hear. Jesus has the answer to loveless churches. Repent and do the first works. And open your ears to what I have to say.
I'm the Savior who's faithful. I promise you, in the way of your repenting and believing, you're going to sense and experience once again the love I have for you, the power, the the dynamic of a people that's moved from earth to heaven, from sin to sanctification, from status quo to living out your only comfort in life and in death. This is striking what the gospel does to us, beloved, in application. The gospel is a way of moving us as it grips us with the only comfort in life and in death. It has a way of moving us out of our comfort zones to being those who actually go among the people of Comstock Park or the people of your work and wherever you live, Hudsonville, Jenison, whatever, so that you shine. And so that you show and the young people show, you know what? My convenience doesn't matter. My having to do without because I'm giving to the cause of missions, that doesn't matter because the cause of Christ is greater than mine. And I'm going to be bold where I once was not because there's a comfort that everybody needs so desperately and I want to be an agent of that comfort. You see, nobody knows what home is anymore. But Jesus says, my promise is, I'm going to take you home. And that's your only comfort in life and in death. In fact, I'll give you to know my home right now. In the church of Christ, with the saints and godly families. So you have peace with God, peace with man, peace with yourself. That's soul comfort, beloved. The soul comfort of the forgiven, the justified, the sanctified, the glorified. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Amen. We pray, Lord, you would bless us and make your face shine upon us. Give this congregation to know its only comfort in life and in death and not to lose that knowledge and that love. Give, Father, much grace to the pastor, to the elder, to the deacons, to all of us together to be this people that loves the comfort of the Lord and loves to be your people. Hear our prayers and bless us and make your face shine upon our congregation and upon all this world for the sake of, of all for whom Jesus died. In his name we pray, amen.